Thanks, Jamin. Brothers and sisters and young people, I thought we would start by just doing a little bit of a recap. And um, there was a slide that I never put up um, early on in the first session, and it uh, may work quite well as a bit of a recap. Um, we, we've suggested that Jesus' seven sayings from the cross, which span the time period from the morning to the evening sacrifice from 9am to 3pm, are, are typical really of the life cycle of a disciple in the Lord. They present to us um, the aspect of our life before our Lord and the ever-changing things which take place as we develop a spirituality before our God. And um, as we said, the first statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a statement of mercy. And in our uh, wilderness of life in 2012, um, this is the first stage of any disciple. It's the recognition of mercy in our lives, that God has saved us from our sins and the means by which he has done that through Jesus Christ and that should provoke in us a responsibility and an action in terms of our love and care towards others. Um, The next statement, an incredible statement of hope. Um, Truly I say unto thee today, with me you will be in paradise. As we said, the whole emphasis on that statement of Jesus is to be with him. And if we are with him, then access to the tree of life is made open. And a wonderful statement of hope in terms of being freed from our sins, and not just freed from our sins, but freed from the guilt that sin brings. So once we understand God's compassion and willingness to save, the vision of future redemption becomes our sure hope. Then we looked yesterday at that incredible statement of of love, that Jesus portrayed from the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And, and, and as we develop in the truth, it's our development in terms of our family relationship that we develop. We discover that really we leave our natural father and mother and we cleave unto the bride of Christ. And this becomes our family. And it becomes a new bond and a new fellowship that we have. And we truly understand God's mercy. But inevitably, as in every development of any disciple that has ever lived, when God begins a good work, he will finish it. And in order to finish it, there are times when we will be in daylight and then times when we will be in darkness. And these were the three sayings of Jesus during the day, between 9am and 12pm. But then came three hours of darkness. And it was at the end of the darkness that we get the next four sayings. And they epitomize these four sayings, our Lord's trust in God. And and, and the saying we're going to look at this morning, on the surface, appears to be a statement of despair, appears to be a a, a statement where Christ sees himself as forsaken by his God. But we're going to see that that couldn't be further from the truth, that Jesus is in fact, like all his sayings, drawing attention for others to look at the power of his words. And the statement is more for those around the cross than it is for himself. His trust never wavered. And through our life, we will inevitably come across a time in our life or times in our life when every human vestige of hope will depart from us in terms of solving our solution and the only answer to our problems will be God. 
And that will be the making and breaking of us as a disciple. It's how we react in those situations. Do we turn to our own arm, our own hand for the solution to our problems? Or do we pour out our heart and soul to God? And inevitably, there must come those times. And if we go through those trials and we overcome those trials and trust in God, there becomes within us, and as the, uh, the elderly this morning, as we were there, were up first thing in the morning to do their readings, the insatiable desire, hunger and thirst for God's word. And it seems that you, you see this so much as, um, as, as our, the faithful disciples grow older that their whole trust is on the word of God and, and it becomes their desire more and more as they grow older in their life. And they've seen the way God's worked in their life and they've come to trust that his word has been the one that has guided them all their, all their lives and their enthusiasm, their hunger and thirst, insatiable thirst for his word becomes evident. And then ultimately, of course, that statement, it is finished. The, the, the triumph of every faithful disciple to know, once, once he understands that God truly will never leave him nor forsake him, the conviction, the triumph to know that they have been promised the reward and inheritance and they are assured of that inheritance. They know it in themselves because of their love and trust for their Father. And ultimately, of course, the life is given back to God. God has begun a good work and he finishes it and into thy hands I commit my spirit and our entire lives are given back to God. And that is the seven sayings on, a cro- on the cross. That is the, the life cycle of every disciple in the Lord. And it is our discipleship in 2012. So I just want to come back briefly because we, we raced through this bit on um, woman behold thy son and son behold thy mother because I've forever been getting behind time. Um, and we see this was Jesus' statement of love. And as, as we said, for both Mary and for John, it was a very powerful statement simply because of what Simeon had said to Mary right at the time when Jesus was, was born that this child was set for the fall and rise of many in Israel and yea, and a sword shall pierce thy side also. And we mentioned the fact that Mary is the only human, the only disciple that had ever lived that was 100% convinced that the man that stood before her was the Son of God. She had no doubt. Every other disciple, every other person had doubts at times in their life. Is this the Son of God? But Mary would have no doubt, would she not? Because she knew how she became pregnant. And she knew that this child, this man in front of her was truly the Son of God. And it was a powerful thing for her as she stood at the foot of the cross to see her son being crucified. And of course, John, who, uh, who had desired care of his mother to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his glory, was now there before Christ in his glory. This was the Father glorifying the Son. And could John really want to be in that position now as he looked to the right and left hand of Jesus and saw two criminals being crucified with Christ? And it was a powerful thing that John, this disciple that was forever competitive, was ever desiring to be the greatest in the kingdom of God and the greatest amongst the other disciples, would now see what it would take to become the greatest. He must humble himself. And he was going to take on the care and nurture and responsibility of looking after the Lord's mother. 
Well, it's an amazing picture, isn't it, of, of Christ on the cross. To see a, a, a person on one side who was casting in at his face. It says he reviled him. So the one thief was reviling him and saying, you know, if you're the son of God, save yourself. If you think about it, that in fact was exactly the same statement of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Hast God said, thou shalt surely die? He doesn't really mean it. Has God said, this is the path that you must take? You don't have to die. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And it was the same saying that was coming from all of those around Jesus. He was surrounded by serpents. Now, I had to put this slide up. I found it in, my, um, in, uh, in, in some old files um, just yesterday. And I had to put this up because um, this is uh, especially for, for mother-in-law and, uh, and for James. This was uh, drawn many years ago by uh, Davy Saul for me, and I just love that slide. I think it's a, a great picture of the, uh, the brood of uh, vipers there. But this is what was happening. The, the serpent was everywhere in front of Christ. A- and that's what they were saying. If you're the son of God, you do not have to die. Save yourself. And remember, he had the power. He, he, God had given him at his disposal... Twelve legions of angels. And they would have been there at his beck and call, ready to come, to vanquish that evil right there at his command if he so wanted to. And the temptation was there right before him all the time to prove he was the Son of God. And God would have responded. God had given him that power. But of course Jesus knew that this was not the Father's will. And despite the fact that 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 serpent reasoning was all around him. And it was beautiful the way in which God then has this other malefactor beside him that comes with this incredible statement. And there on the other side of him was the picture of a man who saw the way to the tree of life and suddenly turned to Jesus and looked at Jesus and said, Remember me. It's remarkable, isn't it? You think about that man and you compare him to Cain. Cain was the first seed of the serpent, wasn't he? And he was a murderer. And he killed a righteous man. This man being crucified by Jesus was guilty of the same. As we we showed yesterday, he was a murderer, like Cain. And God said to Cain, look Cain, if you do well, there's a sin offering lying at the door. You can still be saved. And Cain said, my sin is greater than I, cannot, than I can bear. And so God exiled him to the land of Nod. And off went Cain to Noddy land, far away from the paradise of God. Far away from the tree of life. He was exiled away from the tree of life, away from the cherubim. Access to the tree of life was denied this man. Why? Because he didn't believe he could be saved. Whereas this other thief turned around and said, Lord Remember me. And all of a sudden, this man has found the path back to the tree of life. And uh, I, I was uh, talking after my session yesterday with somebody and, and it was really, it was a powerful sort of discussion that we had and I hadn't seen this point before in, in terms of Jesus saying to Mary. We, we link the fact that Mary 
in saying woman, Jesus was referring to her as the seed of the woman, as Eve, the mother of all living. And, and he was the seed of the woman being crucified before her very eyes as the seed of the woman. He was crushing the head of the serpent right there and then. And right before her very eyes in this situation, Jesus now turns around and says to a woman, Behold thy son. Do you know that's exactly what God did with Eve, didn't he? Because she had two sons, seed of the woman and seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent rose up and slew the seed of the woman. And Cain killed the seed of the woman and killed Abel. And so she had another son called Seth and said, God hath appointed me another son in place of this, the seed of the woman. And here was Jesus being crucified right in front of her, the the seed of the woman. And he turned to her and said, Woman, behold thy son. And he gave to her another son in place of himself. And it's a beautiful picture of, of really everything that was taking place in the garden. Well, the record says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Have you ever thought that that is the only real example of a tree of life, an active tree of life in the Word of God? This dead stick, a pole, and they put a serpent on a pole and they hung it up and if the people looked at that and never took their eyes off it, they would be saved. As soon as they turned away from that, they would die. And here was Jesus crucified in the midst of them on a dead stick, on a dead pole. He was truly the tree of life in the midst of them. Well, we come to our, uh, our next statement. Our statement which we said is a um, statement of trust where he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But we need to kind of, um, I suppose, look at the background of this. Matthew says that um, it came at the end of this three hours of darkness and that there was darkness from the, uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour or 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. And in the midst of all of these jeers and all of this crying of, of these people to say, he saved others, he's self, he cannot save. And as people came down to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover, there were the chief priests and they were casting it in his face. They were making sure that everybody would not be swayed by the sign that hung over his head saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. If he was the king of the Jews, what's he doing up there? If he was God's son, what's he doing up there? If he trusted in God, surely God would deliver him if he delights in him, if he's his beloved. Well, in the prophecy of Amos, there's an interesting little um, statement about the darkness and uh, it's worth having a little bit of a look just for, I suppose, a connection to this. Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8 verse 9, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I will darken the earth in the clear day. I'll cause the sun to go down at noon and I'll darken the earth in the clear day. Well, that's exactly what happened, of course, in in, in the crucifixion of Christ. And 
Here is an underlying prophecy pointing forward to what was happening at the cross. Verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning. Of course, it was Passover time. All your songs into lamentation. And I'll bring sackcloth upon your loins and baldness upon every head. And I'll make it as the, the mourning of an only child. The mourning of an only child. And the end thereof is a bitter day. And then he says, Behold, I will send a famine on this land and they shall wander to and fro throughout every nation and pronouncement of judgment that was going to happen upon that nation because they crucified the only Son of God. And Amos picks up this story of, of God's anger bringing this darkness during the, the, the brightness of the day. And some have suggested that it's an eclipse, but you know this was Passover, this was time of the full moon. You never have an eclipse in the time of a full moon. It just doesn't happen. Not a daytime eclipse. This was no eclipse. This was a supernatural darkness that God brought upon the land at this time. And you can imagine all the jeering. All the words that were being spoken all of a sudden went silent as this darkness came around and came down upon the earth. They were reminded, of course, of the darkness upon Egypt. The firstborn of Egypt that was slain when God's darkness and the angel of evil went forward and slew all the firstborn of Egypt. And this darkness was so dark that it was felt. And there was silence in front of the cross. Silence for three hours. Nothing's recorded for that whole period of three hours. And, and at the end of that three hours, Jesus cries this statement. Now, there have been all sorts of things said about this statement. And, and, and some of the most horrific things come from church commentaries about this statement in terms of the fact that, you know, God truly had to, uh, co- had to forsake his son for a time because of his holiness. And, and this was, um, well, then they talk about how this was how God's nature could not be uh, seen associated with Christ at this time. So this was... God himself being crucified, but the God part of his crucifixion couldn't be there, so the God part of his humanity was taken away for a moment. And there's just crazy stuff written about it from church commentaries, all trying to get their head around what was being said. Um, sadly, I, I think that you know we've got lulled into that, and there's been some statements really, I, I think, within our own community uh, that, that have been somewhat confused by this. And it's been suggested that um, at some stage God had to withdraw his spirit from Jesus and as he was approaching death because God's spirit is holy and Jesus was man and, and at some stage he had to withdraw his spirit. Well, there might be a possibility of this, but there's no scriptural proof of this. There's no, you have no evidence to show that when God gave his Holy Spirit to somebody, that he had to count down and say, right, oh, 15 minutes before he dies, I need to get that spirit back now, otherwise it's going to be associated with a dead man. You've got nothing in the Bible of that sort of thing. Man's spirit, his breath, returns to God when he dies. Why can't his Holy Spirit have done the same thing? You know, Stephen, right before the point of his death, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the glory of the Father, and it says they rushed upon him, took him out and stoned him. Well, in between that, did God suddenly say, oh, I better take that back. Oh, nothing in the Bible is recorded like that. Besides, this word forsaken in, in Psalm 22 literally means to leave. It's the same word which used 
when, when we say, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. It literally means to let go of. It's from a root which means to release, to let go of. And, and it goes in the face of every other statement. Um, we'll come back to that. There it is. It's the primitive root meaning to loosen. That is to relinquish, to permit, to forsake, to leave, to refuse. But it goes in the face of every other um, statement in the Bible about what God says about his love for his faithful. You think of them. It's, it's all over the Bible. Genesis 28, very same word. Promise to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and I'll keep you in all places, every place where you go. And I'll bring you again unto this land for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken of you. I will not forsake you. That's God's promise to Jacob. God's promise to Joshua. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, I will be with thee. I will not leave thee nor forsake thee. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. David says it in Psalm 37. I have been young and now I'm old. This is one thing I've seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God doesn't do that. Are we to imagine that just because the time was getting close, that that, those verses really applied to Jesus and that he felt that? Surely Jesus knew these quotes. He knew the principle of God being with Jacob, being with Moses, being with Joshua, being with David. And of course there's the New Testament one where Paul brings it up in Hebrews chapter 13 and applies it directly to you and me. And that's where it becomes so powerful. It's exactly the same for you and me. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, so how are we to understand these words in um, Psalm 22? And I'm going back because I've got these out of order. But coming back to Psalm 22, there's two things I want you to notice. If he was praying directly to God in this statement, Jesus would have said, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Every prayer Jesus ever made, that's how he addressed his prayer to God. He, or he could be alluding to Psalm 22 without, with changing my God to Father. Every prayer he ever addressed directly to his God, he addressed as my Father. Why, in this anguish, would he turn around and say, my God, my God? It's clear he's deliberately quoting this, not as anguish for his direct statement to God, but to draw everybody's attention to the psalm. There's no doubt that's what he's drawing. Now, the other thing is, and this is, this is a real key thing, did you know he changes the Hebrew in Psalm 22? He actually changes the Hebrew in Psalm 22. The word forsaken, the word Jesus uses is dif different. Sabachthani is not the, the word azabtani or azabthani. It's a different word. That's the word in Psalm 22. Jesus uses a different word when he quotes this. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And this is the word he uses, which is very interesting. Sabbath. It literally means 
It's from a root, literally meaning to entwine or to wrap together. That's interesting, isn't it? The root of the word alzap in Psalm 22 means to release and to let go. The word Jesus uses, although he's going back to Psalm 22 without doubt, is a word which means to wrap together, to entwine or to hold. Very interesting. The root is actually quite the opposite in terms of what he uses. And um, it's very interesting where it's used. Yeah, I'm going to be getting pretty sticky here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a few people there that are dying in the back. That's not a bad idea. Wrong shirt to wear this morning. <laughs> so the word which Jesus uses in this psalm, they are the, the, the noun version of the verb he uses is found in Genesis chapter 22, where it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behind him a ram was caught in a thicket. Isn't that interesting? That's the, that's the root of the word that Jesus used when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The word thicket, caught in a thicket, means to be ensnared in thorns. In fact, the word is only used about five times in the Old Testament and in all cases it has relationship to being entwined in, in trees or brambles or thorns. Now here was Jesus on the cross, crown of thorns on his head, um, spikes through his feet, spikes through his hands, no way he could move with his hands, no way he could move with his head, no way he could move with his feet. And there he is like a ram, caught in a thicket, entwined and sneered, wrapped about. And he draws their mind back to Genesis chapter 22. What a chapter. What a chapter to take their mind back to, isn't it? Behold, the Lord will provide a lamb for his offering, said Abraham to Isaac. The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. That's what he said in Genesis chapter 22. And then he turned around and found a ram caught in a thicket, which obviously was not what was intended by that statement that Abraham made to Isaac. The truthfulness of that statement is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was the symbol of Christ on the cross. Now look what it says in Genesis chapter 22. Look at the power of it. Abraham turned around and, and offered that ram. And he said, this place shall be called Yahweh Yairah. That is to say, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. In this mount, you'll see it. And of course it was on Mount Moriah. This was the place of the crucifixion where these things took place. And in this mount, it will be seen. What will be seen? Well, Jesus said to them in John 8 verse 54, I honour myself, my honour is nothing. It's my Father that honoureth me, of whom ye say, He is your God. My God, my God, said Jesus. You say he's your God. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Everything that took place on, on that mount with Abraham and Isaac and that ram pointed straight forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that Jesus was drawing their attention to this psalm and it's highly likely that Jesus quoted this whole psalm in Psalm 22. And, and, and within the psalm itself, Psalm 22, is the fact that God would never leave nor forsake the righteous. This, and within the psalm itself, Psalm 22, we have a look at verse 24. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither is he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he did hear. So the psalm itself answers that first part. God truly did answer the Lord in these things. So Genesis 22, of course, goes on to say that in blessing I will bless thee and I will make thy name great. And thy seed, he said to Abraham, shall possess the gates of his enemies. And of course we know that that's a reference to, he saith, not to seeds of many, but as to seeds of one. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, am I alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to hell and death. The enemies of the Lord he possesses the keys to. And it's a picture, of course, of God's deliverance. But you know, there's something more in all of this. And, and it's in our reading in Psalm 18, what happened in that three hours. Do you know, every offering, every offering under the Lord, of course, was taken by the priests and it was taken into the tabernacle and it was offered there on the, on the offering on the altar. And, and in the wilderness, the glory of God came down upon that tabernacle to receive that offering. The blood of that offering, God would come down and receive that offering. Every offering under the law pointed forward to Christ, did it not? Every burn offering, every sin offering, every trespass offering, every peace offering pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now he was being crucified and his blood was being poured out as the perfect offering and it wasn't even in the city. It wasn't in the temple. There was no holy place. In fact, he was outside the camp. So how was God going to receive this offering? Psalm 18 is an incredible psalm that I believe tells you what happened during that three hours of darkness. God came down to accept this offering. This is the epiphany of the Father coming down in Shekinah glory to the cross. And look what it says in Psalm 18. The sorrows of death, verse 4, compass me about. The sorrows of hell compassed me about in the snares of death. And in my distress I called on the Lord and I cried unto my God who heard me out of his temple. And my cry came unto his ears, and the earth shook and trembled. Surely this was taking place at the cross. The earth shook and trembled, and the hills moved and were shaken. And there went smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness his secret place his pavilion round about him. Do you know when Moses wanted to see the glory of the Lord in Exodus chapter 34, God said to Moses, you can't look on my glory, you can't see my face. He says, go in that rock, hide yourself, and my glory will pass by there and you can look at the hinder parts of me. When Elijah 
saw earthquake, wind and fire and the still small voice. He came out with his face wrapped in a mantle because he couldn't look upon the glory of the Lord. But there was no rock to hide for our Lord. There was no mantle to wrap his face in. So Yahweh bowed the heavens and came down and he made darkness his secret place. And he came down to the foot of the cross to encourage his son in what was taking place. And darkness became the enshrouding of the glory of God. No one else saw it. Maybe the thief on the cross, who knows? It's an interesting thought. Maybe he heard the voice. I don't know. But I believe during that three hours of darkness, when you look at this psalm, this is a picture of God's epiphany of coming down to be with his son in those last hours and to encourage him. So far from the fact at the end of three hours, Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was closer to his father at that time than he had been since the garden because his father had come down and bowed the heavens to be with his son and to encourage him. Do you know, there's no coincidence at all, brothers and sisters, in the construction of the Psalms. There's no coincidence that Psalm 23 is next to Psalm 22. Psalm 23, of course, is the most well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's a picture, of course, of God's, of God's care and protection for the sheep of his pasture. And it's right along Psalm 22, which we know is the Lord Jesus Christ and all his suffering and anguish before his Father. Do you know, in Mark chapter 6, you can have a look at this for a minute. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he drew on Psalm 23. Uh, Mark's record clearly, deliberately, takes you back to Psalm 23, doesn't it? In the feeding of the 5,000. How do we know that? What's in this chapter? What's in the story in Mark's record that takes you back to the feeding of the 5,000? There's a couple of little things in here. Does anybody know? Starts really verse 34. That's probably your biggest hint. Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them because they were like sheep that didn't have a shepherd. So all of a sudden, you know, Mark's record is taking you back to the story of the shepherd and the sheep. But he doesn't finish there. There's another one in there which is a clear reference to Psalm 23. Exactly. Yep. Very good. Verse 39. He commanded them to make them to sit down by companies in the green grass. Now, what does it say that? It could have just said grass or on the ground. But Mark's very explicit. He made them to sit down by companies on the green grass. Psalm 22. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And so Jesus then performs this incredible miracle and he feeds them. Do you know what happens next? The very next thing, the disciples go forth in a boat and there's this incredible storm. Now these guys are fishermen, they used to being on the sea and this storm was such that they were utterly and completely petrified. They were scared beyond measure. And it says, verse 49, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and they were troubled, verse 50. And immediately he said, be of good cheer, don't be afraid. And when he went up into the ship, the wind ceased. Poof, stopped Bang, like that. Jesus stepped into the boat and the storm just came completely still. 
And it says, they were amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Beyond measure. This was something that they had never... They'd just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fishes. What an incredible miracle. But this miracle, this miracle which Jesus done, had them absolutely stunned. They wondered beyond measure. And then look what it says. Why did they wonder beyond measure? Because they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Now, why would Mark say that? You know, what was so, why they were so confused over this and why they wondered so much is they hadn't thought about the miracle of the loaves. What do you think that means? Well, I think it means this. The miracle of the loaves is taking you straight back to Psalm 23. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and it's the story of the good shepherd. Sheep lying down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff are there to comfort me and guide me. Do you know in life, it's often that we can see God working in our lives when things are going good. When we're lying down in green pastures, And things are great and we can say, oh, you know, I've been so blessed. God's given us so much. And these things have happened. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we see fear on every side, it's hard to see the shepherd beside you in the valley of the shadow of death. It's easy to see him beside you when things are going good, but when things are going bad, it's hard to see the shepherd beside you. And they considered not that the same shepherd that would cause them to lie down in green pastures is the same shepherd that will, will lead them through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus knew this, of course. And while he was going through the valley of the shadow of death and the horrors of darkness overwhelmed him, the Lord was his shepherd and his rod and his staff beside him. Brothers and sisters, young people, we must go through this in our life. We must go through it. Some of us probably have been through it in our life to see that when we've walked through the valley of the shadow of death that the Lord is there with us. And there will come a time in your life where you will have to cast your care completely upon the Lord. And um, I could say in my own personal life, I've probably learned this lesson a few times, maybe because, um, or or had to learn this lesson a few times, and maybe it's because I'm just a little bit thicker in the head and and God has to take me through this lesson a few times to understand, to trust in Him. But I had an experience recently, and I've talked to some of you about it, but I had an experience which was pretty horrific. And it it was a situation which was incredibly scary. A situation where I was in a foreign country and I was abducted and arrested and I was blindfolded and had a black sack put over my head and was handcuffed and was taken away and was interrogated for six hours. And it was the scariest thing in my life. And I I can tell you that during that six hours I've not been able to see a thing. I've been completely in utter darkness and to be treated in the way I was. I've never felt closer to my God in my life. 
Never, ever have I felt closer to my God in my life. And never have I prayed so much in my life. And for six hours, I was continuously in prayer to my God. And I discovered that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is our shepherd. And He will bring us to the other side. If you trust in Him, He will definitely deliver you and bring you to the other side. But it's a lesson that all of us must go through. And I know that many people here, as we've, uh, Catherine and I have spent time talking to a lot of you here, have been through a really hard time lately. Been through times when, you know, you've almost questioned, I suppose, our community in a way. And and what the truth's about. Because of betrayal and, and, and because of the difficulties which you've faced and and some of the experiences which have taken place and feeling like you've been isolated. Put your trust in God. There is no doubt that if you're going through a hard time and you're going through a trial in your life right now, God's not forsaken you. That's his love. The greater the trial, the more he loves you. It's evident that he is putting you through this for one reason only, that you will let go of every human hope and turn to him and grab hold of him. And he won't leave you nor forsake you. Very soon Christ is going to come back. And we all have to go through this experience in our wilderness and we all have to go through those three hours of darkness in our pilgrimage towards the kingdom. But if we can go through that three hours of darkness and turn our heart, soul and mind to our Father then we'll be able to say at the end of it, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit.